The Naked Scientist Newsflash. Reacting to the world's best science. Hello, welcome to the Naked Scientist News Flash, where we take a weekly look at what's hot in the world of science. This week's episode is brought to you by Helen Scales and Chris Smith, and I'm Ben Valsler. Coming up, how scientists have found a better way to combat allergies by injecting a dilute solution of allergens straight into the lymph glands. The results at three-year follow-up were really, really impressive. The people who had the lymph node injections, after just three injections, they began to show dramatic improvements in their symptoms. They had far fewer side effects. And also, because the response was much quicker, they all improved in symptoms much sooner. And how listening to your all-time favourite sing-along feel-good anthems could be good for your heart. The emotions associated with listening to joyous music has a beneficial effect on blood vessels, leading to improved blood flow. In a similar way, that laughter has already been shown to be good for us. That's all on the way. Now, for people like me who suffer from allergies, annoying as they are, hay fever, asthma, food allergies... Often the only way to deal with them is to take drugs like antihistamines that can make the symptoms better. They don't actually make the problem go away. But now researchers have come up with a better way to desensitise people. In other words, to make the immune system tolerate better the thing that they're reacting to. This is Gabriella Senti and her colleagues. They're at the University Hospital in Zurich and they've pioneered an approach in which you inject people with allergen not into the skin, but into the lymph nodes, the glands. Now, in the past, when doctors have tried to desensitise patients, they've made a weak solution of the thing that the person is allergic to and then injected this into the skin. And over a course of several years of doing this, eventually, in some people, the body learns to tolerate the thing you're injecting. But it's not without risk, because the skin is all tooled up to tackle allergen like this, and often you get very profound and pronounced reactions. And this includes anaphylaxis, which can be life-threatening. So this group of researchers thought, well, if... If we inject instead the allergen directly into the lymph nodes, that's where the cells are that can reprogram the immune system and re-educate immunity in order to better tolerate allergen. So instead of having to give the allergen to the skin where you get a vigorous reaction, if we inject it into lymph nodes, it might be better. So they recruited 183 people who had hay fever. They divided them into two groups. Group one just got skin injections. This went on for three years and they had 54 injections of the thing they were allergic to into the skin. The other group got just three injections, one month apart, into lymph nodes, glands in their groin, which you can find very easily just by palpation or by using ultrasound to spot them. The results at three-year follow-up were really, really impressive. The people who had the lymph node injections, after just three injections, they began to show dramatic improvements in their symptoms, and that effect persisted for the three years of the study. They had far fewer side effects. That meant they needed to take less antihistamines. They needed to be admitted to hospital less often with reactions like anaphylaxis. And also, because the response was much quicker, they all improved in symptoms much sooner. And they also reported that it was less uncomfortable. It's less painful being injected in your lymph nodes than it is into your skin. So they're saying this is a very good way to control the immune response and to drive a re-education of immunity by injecting people with the thing they're allergic to and to do it in a much safer way. Is that what we're going to see happening? Is it simply a case of redirecting those needles to a different part of the body and we can do that very quickly if it's the same thing that they're using? This is published this week in the journal PNAS, so you can have a read about it. But yes, what they're saying is this is an initial trial. We need to do this a bit more in order to assess what happens if you do this to bigger groups of people and perhaps look at other allergies as well, because obviously they've looked at hay fever. What about other kinds of allergies? Will the same trick work? But I think more trials are going to be needed. But the difference is that 
we know where these lymph nodes are. We know how to do these reactions and how to do these injections. And it's already licensed for injection into the skin. So I don't think there's much of a, a, a translation problem. We're doing it instead into a lymph node instead of in the skin. So I think there's every reason to be optimistic. I think we'll be seeing this quite soon. Fantastic. Well, from helping us deal with our allergies to making our hearts feel a lot better as well. And that may come down to listening to your favourite music. Well, we all know that feel-good music puts us in a great mood, but it could also be good for our hearts. Researchers from the University of Maryland School of Medicine in Baltimore in the US have shown that for the first time the emotions associated with listening to joyous music has a beneficial effect on blood vessels leading to improved blood flow in a similar way that laughter has already been shown to be good for us. Now, this study was presented at the scientific sessions of the American Heart Association in New Orleans this week, and it essentially involved 10 healthy volunteers who were tested for four, with four different types of music that they were played for half an hour at a time. And uh, for one of these music uh, types of music, the volunteers were asked to bring along recordings of the mu- music that they really liked and that they made them feel happy. And apparently, um, most of them chose country music, so I think that um, really just reflects on where this study was done. Um, they were also played music that they didn't like and that made them feel very anxious and apparently for most of the these experimental subjects that was heavy metal music um, and thirdly they were played music designed to be relaxing so I assume that was some sort of waves or whale music or something uh, and a fourth session um, they were actually played videotapes which were um, comedy shows that were intended to make them have a giggle um, now to measure the effect of music on blood vessels the researchers measured something called flow mediated dilation now essentially that determines how the lining of the blood cells called the endothelium actually responds to different stimuli and that includes things like emotions as well as medicines and exercise, things like that. And it essentially is looking at how well blood is being delivered to the tissues. Now, to measure um, flow-mediated dilation involves essentially restricting blood flow briefly along an artery in the upper arm using a cuff, so sort of holding the blood vessel down, then releasing it and using ultrasound, you can measure how much the blood um, vessels respond, whether they increase in size or decrease, and you can get a percentage um, measurement out of that. Um, So the researchers then basically looked at this, um, played the music, saw what effect it had on their blood vessels, and they found that when they were listening to the happy, joyous music, their blood vessels expanded by, on average, 26%. Um, And a similar but smaller effect happened when they listened to the relaxing music. But the opposite happened when they were played the unhappy, anxiety-inducing music when their blood vessels actually constricted by around 6%. Now, the interesting point here is that um, when they watched the funny videos, the same effect of expansion in the blood vessels also happened, but to a lesser extent, only to around 19% of an expansion in the blood vessels when they were having a laugh. Or maybe they weren't. I'm kind of interested to know if the subjects actually did laugh because I mean, we all laugh at different things don't we you know we're not all the same um but you know bottom line is well why is this happening do we have any idea that's actually still quite a mystery the sort of link between our brains and our bodies is part of the human biology that's still very unknown um it could well be something to do with endorphins those um, happy chemicals in the brain um and it certainly isn't the case that mu- country music is going to work for all of us it'll be more the case that um, it'll be the particular music that you like but maybe you know just the good piece of news is spend a bit of your day listening to some of your favorite music and uh, it might be good for you so just do it why not <laughs> I think it's quite telling that the people who got the Ig Nobel Prize for Medicine a few years ago, Helen, got it for showing that if you play someone or or that suicide rates were correlated with radio stations playing a lot of country music. So where radio stations in the States, this research was done, where they played a lot more country music, the suicide rate was a lot higher. So um, it may have been beneficial to your heart, but it might not be good for your mood in the long term. Who knows? 
Now, also uh, this week, scientists have discovered that part of what we call taste may actually be down to the bacteria that live in our mouths. Now, this stems from a conundrum that's been revolving around the drink Sauvignon. So, in other words, the grape Sauvignon that's used to make wines like Sauvignon Blanc for a little while. There was a French enologist, a wine expert, called Emile Penel, who published a book in the 1990s in which he drew attention to the fact that you get this burst of fruity flavour from a sip of Sauvignon after it's slipped down your throat. So, in other words, even after you've swallowed the wine, about 30 seconds later you then get this so-called retro aroma you get this second taste and no one actually knew exactly where it was coming from but now scientists uh, including Christian Starkenman who's a researcher at Fermanich in Switzerland that's a flavour company they've published a paper this week in the Journal of Agricultural and Food Chemistry if you want to look it up Um, what they've actually shown is why this happens and it turns out that it's all down to the bacteria in your mouth metabolising things that are in the wine now In the wine, there are flavour compounds which are odourless. So if you just sniff them, you can't tell that they're there. And they're based on sulphur. They're things called cysteine S conjugates. So they don't volatilise, they don't evaporate in your mouth and go into your nose. So you can't smell them. But if you take saliva from volunteers, as these guys did, take the saliva and put it into two, break it into two halves. Half the sample you pasteurise, so you heat it to 60 degrees to get rid of any bacteria that are in it, the other half you keep pristine. If you then add the sulphur compounds to the two specimens and then ask people to sniff them, you find that only in the saliva sample that has not been pasteurised does the effect, the ability to produce this nice smell continue. In the pasteurised saliva, it completely goes away. And this told the researchers there must be something alive, something microbial perhaps in the saliva, which is having this effect. So they cultured bacteria from the saliva and they grew one kind of bacteria, an anaerobe, in other words, a bacterium that hates oxygen, called Fusobacterium nucleatum. And when they added this bacterium to some mineral water with some of these other sulphur compounds, they were able to recreate the effect of the Sauvignon Blanc swishing around your mouth. So this shows that probably when you take a a bite of certain fruits, when you drink glasses of wine like this, or certain other um, compounds like um, bell peppers make a very nice similar flavorous burst in your mouth, um, when you eat these foods, probably what happens is that some of these odorless sulphur compounds get broken down by bacteria in your mouth that takes a little while so then you get this burst of flavor after you've swallowed and that's where it comes from it's all down to the bugs that you've got in your mouth do we all have the same bugs because i imagine that maybe some of us have different types of bugs in our mouth i know some people are more prone to certain sort of um conditions like gum disease i think maybe are are linked to that sort of thing so are there people who are have more of a fruit burst in their mouth than others do you think perhaps it could account for the fact that there are different tastes and flavors amongst different people and also preferences for certain foods tend to run in families and you acquire the bacteria that you have in and on your body from your parents because of kissing and the way you're born and also breastfeeding and things so it could be that uh, in fact tastes are down to the bugs that you have in your mouth To a certain extent, that's given to you from your parents, and this affects how you experience different foods. And also, because those profiles do change slightly, it could account for the fact that different people like different things. Well, there you go. Now, while the world headlines are still full of the news that the Americans have elected Barack Obama as their first African-American president, there is also news this week of how members of the fish world elect their leaders. Well, when it comes to deciding which leader to back, most of the time fish reach a consensus to go for the most attractive of two possible leaders. But like stereotypical sheep following the flock, fish will also follow whatever choice most of the rest of their shoal take, whether or not it's the right choice or not. Now, this is a study from 
from a team of researchers led by David Sumter from Uppsala University in Sweden and Ashley Ward from Sydney University in Australia. And they published this in the, this week in the journal Current Biology. Now, they conducted experiments in aquariums with little freshwater fish called three-spined sticklebacks. And from previous studies, they already knew that these fish had certain preferences for particular leader fish. And they were ones that were just generally fitter, bigger, plumper, and that haven't got spots that might indicate that they have a parasitic infection. Now, what the researchers wanted to know was whether a shoal of fish as a gr- um, come to a decision as a group on which leader to back and whether that's by consensus. In other words, do they make decisions that reflect the general opinion of the whole group? Now, a similar thing actually happens in people when we're asked to sit on a jury in court. It was actually a, an 18th century French philosopher, Condorcet, who showed that as the size of a jury increases, so does the chance that the group will correctly decide if the defendant is guilty or not. But how do they know the, the defendant is guilty or not? Well, OK. I mean... <laughs> Now, that's just being difficult, but this is the same sort of thing that goes on in fish, and it's much easier to see in fish because um, they're essentially going for fish that are or are not attractive based on whether they're big, small, skinny and spotty and so on. And that's what Sumter and Ward did. They made replica fish re- representing different levels of attractiveness, um, which we already knew um, that they do generally prefer. And put quite simply, the groups um, of fish checked out two possible leaders um, in the tanks and swam towards the one that they chose. Um, and the researchers saw that as the size of the shoal of fish increased, the fish got better and better at accurately choosing the better leader which was the one that actually was bigger, better fed and so on. Um, While the consensus group was most accurate, most of the time they were mostly accurate, occasionally the shoal would slip up and make the wrong decision and actually swim towards the smaller, less attractive leader but who can blame the stickleback since us humans, we do make mistakes as well but we generally follow what everyone else around us is doing, whether or not that's always the right thing to do. And it can of course lead to stock market crashes as well if you subscribe to those sorts of values. Thanks, Helen. Read the references and find out the facts. All our programmes are archived in text and audio on our website at nakedscientist.com. That's it for this week. Thanks for listening. This Naked Scientist's News Flash featured Chris Smith and Helen Scales and was produced by me, Ben Valsler. If you enjoyed this News Flash, why not check out the Naked Scientist podcast, where we bring you the latest in science news, interviews with top scientists from around the world, your questions, and a kitchen science experiment to try out at home each week. We'll be back with another round of the hottest science next week. The Naked Scientist News Flash. Reacting to the world's best science. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com.